Hello everyone and welcome to Navara Live. I'm Dalia Gabriel and joining me today is Mike Bancole. Mike, how are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. It's lovely to be joining you, Dalia. I think this is our first show together, so uh, it could be, it should be a good one. And uh, we might be the new A team, who knows? So uh, yeah, looking forward to this. I mean, I think I think we have the, the raw ingredients to really do something <laughs> special here. <laughs> so coming up tonight, uh, a Tory minister has said that the government is prepared to build more prisons to jail shoplifters. Labour confirmed their pretty poor position on Sunak's new oil and gas licences. And Boris Johnson has got a new enemy. You'll find out who at the end of the show. So here is today's first story. Energy giant BP has announced its profits for the last quarter. And whilst its profits have dropped by 70%, it still raked in a cool £2 billion between April and June. That profit dip isn't because the company's doing badly, it's down to increased spending in oil and gas infrastructure, as well as stabilisation in energy after the upheaval in Ukraine over the past 18 months. One group that's going to be happy today are BP shareholders. That's because BP has decided to raise their dividends by 10% despite tumbling profits. And in a second bonanza for shareholders, it's also committed to a $1.5 billion share buyback in the next quarter. That's on top of the $4.5 billion in buybacks it's already completed this year. In a sign that investors see today's profits as a blip rather than a prediction of things to come, BP's shares were up by 1.5% on the London Stock Exchange this morning. Perhaps they're rubbing their hands after Rishi Sunak announced unfettered access to new oil and gas in the North Sea yesterday. While millions of households are still facing fuel poverty this winter, BP's shareholders are cashing in and new research by Commonwealth shows that while Southern Europe and North Africa were on fire, BP gave handouts to the rich instead of funding low carbon fuel investment. As you can see from this graph, BP paid out a total of $3.3 billion in dividend and buybacks to shareholders. That's 17 times, so 17 times more than the measly $190 million it invested in low-carbon alternatives. It also invested $2.2 billion in oil and gas infrastructure, 12 times what it put into low-carbon investments. Now, these companies love to make you think that these shareholders are just innocent pensioners trying to make it through their retirement. But when you look at BP and Shell's top 10 shareholders, there's only one state pension fund, which belongs to the Norwegian government. But UK pension funds are amongst the least important investors in Shell and BP. Instead, the top shareholders are exactly who you'd expect they'd be. Asset managers, investment banks, etc. So like Shell's last week, BP's dip in profits will almost certainly result in opposition to a further windfall tax this winter. At the moment, the windfall tax of an additional 40% on UK profits takes the total oil and gas giants' pay to 75%. It's set to run until 2028, although energy giants also get a 91 pence tax saving for every pound they invest in UK infrastructure. So that basically means that the government doubles the money they invest in more oil and gas. And remember that between 2015 and 2021, BP paid zero tax on its profits. In fact, the government are the ones who paid BP to the tune of $126 million over that period. 
These endless rebates is what Shadow Climate Change Minister Ed Miliband was referring to when he said this. These figures show the continuing scandal of the Tory failure to act on the windfalls of war being pocketed by the oil and gas producers. Rishi Sunak must fix loopholes in the windfall tax, not hand out billions in taxpayer subsidies. Here's Sophie Flinders from the think tank Commonwealth explaining what kind of policy the government should be pursuing instead. The best approach would be for the state to have a state-owned renewable energy generator and for the state to kind of shield the costs of clean energy transition. BP and Shell, they kind of have these um, segments of low-carbon investment or renewable investment. However, they kind of like dwarf their oil and gas and fossil fuel um, investment um, quarter and quarter. And so we can't really rely on the oil giants to kind of make this transition into renewable energy. Um, and also um, the reason why they do this as well is because there's a very um, there's a diminishing return on investment with renewable energy being kind of new and quite competitive. There's a kind of tendency for the rate of profit to fall. If you're an oil and gas kind of CEO, why would you divert from what is already profitable to um, wind or solar, something that has like less guaranteed returns? When they do kind of deal with like um, BP in the US, they have like uh, state subsidies as well um, for the offshore and onshore um, wind projects. And so if the, if the state's paying these companies to um, provide renewable energy, why not just go a step further and actually start um, producing and energy and renewable energy themselves, building out uh, green technology and green capacity through state-owned en- enterprises? Mike, I'm really interested in the question of public opinion, because to me, it seems pretty obvious who the villains are right now. Uh, And yet, I don't, do you, I mean, I guess I'll see what you think. Do you think that there has been a shift in public opinion or that public opinion against oil and gas companies are strong enough? And if, if not, why do you think that is? I think there's definitely been a shift. So when you look at kind of public opinion data on oil and gas companies, both not just in the UK, but more broadly, there has been a shift. So in the in the US, 60% of people think that oil and gas companies are to blame for the climate crisis. And when you think about the UK, 55% of, of, of Brits view oil and gas companies unfavorably. So there is a shift in opinion in that, you know, oil and gas companies, to use your words, are being viewed as the bad guys in this context. I guess what's slightly different is maybe that the level of anger in terms of how visceral that feeling is. So there's one thing viewing these companies unfavorably, and there's another thing being viscerally angry at them. And I think maybe lots of the reaction to just the oil and, and you know their their activism and how deeply popular they are might suggest that yes, you know, you know, British people see these oil and gas companies as the bad guys. But you know, any people kind of raising dissent on 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 you know kind of the climate emergency, the climate crisis, all these other issues, you know, raising concerns about oil and gas companies, you know, these these voices almost can't be too loud. So, I do think there is a lot of anger, and I do think there is a lot of annoyance, and you know, people are up and down the country are struggling to pay their bills, you know, while oil and gas companies are raking in, you know, billions of pounds in profit. So I do think there is a level of anger. Maybe whether that anger is like a visceral anger that's going to lead people to the streets to protest and to kind of demand change. I'm not so sure. So I kind of understand your skepticism, but I do think there is a shift in public opinion for sure. Yeah. And I think that if people fleeing their holiday homes because of wildfires is not going to make... I mean, we always thought that the problem was that British people aren't going to be motivated to fight against climate breakdown, to fight against these fossil fuel companies, the insurers, the financers who are headquartered in London, because 
we are relatively shielded from the impacts of climate breakdown. But we've seen, you know, over the summer, British people being impacted in ways that maybe they didn't think they would be impacted. Of course, it's nothing on what is going on in the global south, what people on the front lines of climate change are, are dealing with. But it feels like now is a window of time to really seize that narrative. And I think, I guess I'm still kind of surprised that people seem to have more vim for just stop oil protesters than they do for the actual oil and gas companies. But I guess when you have the media in the palm of your hand, that's the kind of, you know, cognitive dissonance you can engineer um, in the population. Not to sound too conspiratorial, though. It's much more nuanced than that, of course. Right, the next story, staying on the oil and gas theme. Rishi Sunak's pledge to grant hundreds of new oil and gas licenses and, quote, max out North Sea developments has been condemned by politicians on both sides of the political divide. But the best known group protesting against the prospect of new oil and gas licenses is, of course, Just Stop Oil. Emma Desaram is an activist from the group and she appeared on Sky News to condemn the Prime Minister's promise. But Mark Austin decided to ask her this. Key here is that the UK is responsible for less than 1% of global emissions. Because we export a lot of our emissions. Look, there are hundreds, thousands of authorities who are saying no new oil and gas, okay? The people and the institutions who agree that no new oil and gas is incompatible with a safe climate, the International Energy Agency, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the United Nations Secretary, the British Medical Association, Oxfam, the Quaker, I could go on. I've got your list. I've got your list. But why not? I mean, why not protest in China or protest outside the Chinese embassy about fossil uh, fossil fuels? Their coal production is going up 3.2 billion tons in 2022, more in 2023, um, predicted to be 3.9 billion tons. So they're fossil. They're the. If you want to go and protest about fossil fuels, you know, protest against the Chinese. But I'm not in China. I'm a, I'm a resident in this country, and that's why I'm protesting about our government not doing enough. We are we are one of the most responsible historic historically the most responsible for the climate crisis, and that is why I'm using my rights as much as they're being eroded away right now, using my rights in this country to protest against this government against new right. fossil fuels. Why aren't you protesting China? It's the classic diversion tactic that the press use when it comes to holding our own government accountable uh, for their policies, particularly around climate breakdown. And listen, Emma came prepared. That was an incredibly patient and well-informed response to a very, I would say, bad faith um, question. And she was completely right. Of course, it makes sense to leverage political power where you are in the context that you know. But also the thing that she said about the historic emissions is completely correct. And it's really relevant to the question that was being asked of her. So let's look at some of the the data um, around this debate, because it is true, yes, that China currently emits more CO2 than the UK. This chart from Our World in Data shows that this wasn't always the case. Per capita, China's CO2 emissions only eclipsed the United Kingdom's this millennium. And you can see how much more we pumped out starting as far back as the 18th century. It's not hard to see that we, as well as other developed nations, might have a special responsibility to cut back our emissions first. 
What's more, just because Britain isn't directly emitting as much fossil fuels as China doesn't mean that we aren't facilitating the industry in other ways. The City of London, for example, is an integral part of global fossil fuel infrastructure. And according to Reclaim Finance, it's the biggest center for coal finance in Europe. So reining in the ability of the city to fund and ensure fossil fuel projects is integral to a just transition. But it's also as if Sunak doesn't want to talk about the environmental and economic benefits of increasing investment in the green economy. And maybe there is a reason for that. Byline Times' Adam Biankov posted this on social media. Rishi Sunak's family business, Infosys, boasts of its partnership with two of the top five integrated oil and gas companies, three of the top four oil field service providers, and five of the top 10 upstream enterprises across the oil and gas landscape. Now, we should be careful here. Infosys is the Indian firm started by the father of Sunak's wife, Akshatha Murthy. Uh, Rishi Sunak has no direct involvement in it. But Infosys is worth $70 billion, and Murthy's shares brought her £6.7 million in dividends in April. Biankov went on to say this. One of Infosys's major clients is Shell, whose CEO joined Rishi Sunak's new business council two weeks ago and promised a candid collaboration with his government. Sunak's family firm Infosys also signed a deal reported to be worth $1.5 billion with BP just two months ago. Now, as I said, Rishi Sunak has no direct involvement in Infosys, but it's hard to see how he and his children aren't beneficiaries of these business deals. And yet Infosys appears nowhere in his register of interests. So Mike, given how close the fossil fuel industry seems to be to our prime minister, what hope do we have in getting to net zero by 2030? I think it's a massive concern. I think in in recent weeks and recent days, we've seen that Rishi Sunak is not the leader that's going to lead this nation to net zero. If anything, quite the opposite. I'd argue that a Conservative government and a Rishi Sunak-led Conservative government diametrically opposed to the, the idea of getting to net zero. I mean, we've seen him kind of take the side of drivers against the anti-drive wokarati, apparently, all of that jazz, the classic Conservative cultures war, war stuff. And the announcement yesterday about new oil and gas in the North Sea. So, you know, Rishi Sunak is not a serious politician when it comes to the climate crisis. And I actually think he's been wildly incompetent here because this is not going to win over any voters. You know, voters, as I mentioned earlier, see, you know, oil and gas companies as the bad guys. In many ways, a lot of voters are very driven when it comes to the climate crisis and want that to be addressed by a government. So the idea that, you know, Rishi Sunak can water down climate pledges, can water down his commitment to net zero, and still think he can appeal to voters is absolutely bonkers, to, to kind of put it mildly. It's, it's ridiculous. And I just think that, you know, Sunak was framed by some as, you know, the man is going to steady the ship and he's going to win over some voters back to the Conservative Party. He's doing anything but that. And I think it just shows that he's not that savvy a politician. He wears a nice suit and speaks a good game sometimes. But when you kind of you look beneath the surface, there isn't much substance there. And he's, and he's not really appealing to any distinct group of voters, maybe like a, a small niche group of voters, but it's not going to win him an election for strategy. So it's just it's just bonkers and silly. Yeah. And I think also what is really interesting about this is the way that we talk about something like government interest and conflict of interest. So normally, in order for something to be registered as a conflict of interest, there has to be a direct connection between a company that's profiting from government policy and 
you know, the politician who is implementing that policy. But that doesn't capture the way that interest as a broader structural, you know, concept is constituted when you have a government that is creating a particular political environment that enriches a particular set of actors that either are connected to people around him, whether it's people that he's directly related to, you know, his wife, husband, friends, whatever, or are a community of people that that person is looking to become part of when they leave office that is also a conflict of interest. It's a conflict of interest on a, in the kind of structural conditions that are about enriching very wealthy people of which these politicians see themselves as part of that community of rich people who are going to be made wealthier by the conditions, whether it's austerity, whether it's lack of regulation around oil and gas. And so the frameworks that we have for flagging whether or not something is a conflict of interest really don't capture actually the bigger issue of you know, in whose interest our governments govern and what kind of role that what they see their role as being and um, whether they see themselves more as part of us or as part of, you know, those shareholders that make all this money from policies that are going to kill us, um, essentially. Our next story, uh, another climate story, actually, it's a very climate heavy show today. Um, but this time we're going to the other side of the aisle to the Labour Party. Labour has been clear that if it wins power at the next election, it won't grant any new oil and gas licences. But what will they do about Rishi Sunak's decision to grant hundreds of new licences for North Sea exploration? Surely Labour would reverse those, given how disastrous the experts have said they'll be for the UK's green transition. And especially as the party has vocally opposed the granting of new oil and gas licences by Sunak. Well, Thangam Debonair is the shadow leader of the House, putting her in charge of preparing Labour's legislative agenda should the party come to power. That's a pretty big job. So if anyone would know the answer to that question, it's her. Well, here's what she had to say on Newsnight. Ed Miliband said today, this drives a uh, coach and horses through climate commitments. So if Labour were to win the election, will you revoke the licences? Well, we will grant no new licences, Kirsty. I mean, obviously, oil and gas is going to play a part in our transition to a fully clean, green energy market. But we need to make sure that we're not going to grant any more. It's not OK. The world is on okay. fire. We right. have all seen that this week. And Rishi Sunak is taking us backwards. We're sending very bad signals to business investors, sending bad signals to consumers who face higher and higher bills. And he's not dealing with the climate emergency as it really is. So, in effect... What you're saying is you won't issue any new licences, but actually it's job done because actually this government is doing that job for you. So you accept that any licences in place when you come to office and by then there'll be hundreds more licences, you are actually agreeing to this fossil fuel strategy. No, what we want to see is a doubling of onshore wind, a tripling of solar, a quadrupling of offshore wind, investment in tidal and wave, which are the great untapped sources of power that surround our island nation, and new nuclear. That is a radical and bold way of tackling climate change. What's more, it's the way that we're going to get those great jobs of the future, bring down people's so, bills, protect our energy security, and tackle climate change you, all at the same but time. But you're that saying that if radical. you come in, if you, but can I just clarify this? Because what you're saying is, if you win the next election, you will not revoke these licences. And so therefore, that production in the North Sea will go ahead for both gas and oil. 
to the same extent that the Conservative government wants it to go ahead. So in a, in a sense, you are pursuing exactly the same strategy. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, absolutely yes. And obviously nothing says bold and radical action like studiously avoiding the quite simple question that is being asked of her, which makes me think that what Debonair is saying there is that when these new licenses are granted, there will be zero difference in what's happening in the North Sea after the next election, whether Labour or the Tories win. Makes you excited for the next election, huh? Mike, how do we apply pressure on the Labour Party to change their position on this? I don't think we can, unfortunately. And I think, you know, Debonair's response there is reflective of Labour's general approach to politics under Keir Starmer. They are unrelentingly unimaginative, this Labour Party at the moment. You know, the line they've drawn between themselves and the Conservative Party is one of competence. So if you think about a lot of Labour's critiques of Conservative policy, whether it's migration, whether it's on the environment, a lot of it is about competence. The problem is, it's not actually really clear what Labour's values are. And it's important as a party to build a consensus, to tell a story, to have these values, these core values and principles the voters can point to and say, these are these values and principles that are guiding what Labour do when it comes to policy on the environment, on climate change, on migration, on, on the cost of living. But that's really unclear for Labour, and that's partly because they've, they've adopted this deliberate strategy of being so unimaginative and not trying to ruffle too many feathers, not trying to abolish too many of the Conservatives' policies, no matter how bad they are, whether it's a two-child policy, whether it's, you know, oil and gas related. They don't want to ruffle too many feathers. They just want to kind of coast to victory in the next general election as straightforwardly as possible. And then apparently when they get into power, they're going to become this kind of radical, transformative, progressive party. But I don't think you can you can all of a sudden just flip the switch overnight, enter, enter government and enact all these kind of radical, radical reforms. You need to build a consensus in the, in the, in the build-up to an election. You know, our democracy, one of the most important parts of our democracy isn't just voting in the ballot box um, every four or five years. It's for deliberative parts to happen between elections, you know, the parts where a party can change voters' minds on an issue or can raise an issue on the agenda or can take a progressive stance on an issue. That all happens in those periods in between elections. So actually, Labour are missing the chance here to take a bold stance on the environment, to speak about, you know, a green economy, in, in bold terms, to, to take a firmer stance on the Conservatives' bad policies. They're missing the chance to do that here, especially because a green economy, you know, will create jobs. And, you know, voters want this to happen. Voters want us to transition to a green economy. Voters want us to take the climate crisis very, very seriously. So I just, I just don't quite understand Labour's strategy here. It is, as I mentioned earlier, just unrelentingly unimaginative. And it just feels a bit silly. I think it's also not good for democracy to have a party misrepresent what their agenda is. You know, if it is the case that secretly they're, you know, these genius strategic radicals who are going to come into power and do so much more than they promised, it's not a good democratic precedent to have this mentality of, oh, you know, the electorate are too stupid or too unimaginative to come on board with our vision before we get elected. So what we'll do is we'll just pretend that we're something else and then switch it up when we get into power. That's not a good thing, although it is very much Keir Starmer's wheelhouse. What's happening right now is that the Labour Party are complicit in building the consensus for a conservative agenda. And this is what really worries me. What worries me is that we might see, yes, a Labour victory, but a slim one because of that lack of vision, because of that lack of excitement. And then 
during a Labour government, concessions to the right being pushed around by the tabloid media because they failed to build that kind of collective power. They failed to have the public buy into the project and so they can more easily fold to whatever the Murdoch press or the tabloid media are telling them to do and then not really achieve much, appear incompetent and then in five years when the next election is up, they've paved the way conceptually and politically for an equally or if not more right-wing conservative party that has had five years to regroup itself and sort itself out and execute its incredibly right-wing and frankly, when it comes to the climate, suicidal uh, agenda. But now it can implement it effectively because it's not in a shambles. It's had five years to recoup itself. I think it was David Graeber who said that the British state is essentially conser the Conservative Party, but Labour's allowed in when the Conservatives need to regroup themselves. That's my worry. And that's what happens when you have a Labour Party that doesn't use the fact that enthusiasm and interest in the Conservative Party is at an all-time low to start to really advocate for a radical shift. Um, especially because the moment calls for it, because, you know, we have until 2030 to put in the kind of policies that would bring us back from the climate brink. Arguably, I don't even know if we can do that at the moment. It's also worth mentioning, uh, Thangam Debonair is the MP for Bristol West, but at the next election, we'll be fighting in a newly created Bristol central seat. And that seat is the key target seat for the Green Party, who are hoping to elect party co-leader Carla Denya as their second ever MP. So people in Bristol, the more you know, that's all I'll say. We're going to take a quick break now, but stay tuned because coming up, we've got the latest regressive policy from the Tory government and a pretty funny story about Johnson's new nemesis. The point of the media is to get to the facts. It's to get to the truth. That's the point. If you want me to start critiquing the British press, I'm happy to. Our press corps is a joke. Why are left-wing politicians held to a completely different standard? The story in the media is already written. There is no meritocracy in media. And to be honest, in my opinion, I look at economic analysis in the media, that is not analysis. That is an entertainment product. You know, we've got this huge media machine which works against any kind of politics of hope. They are still quite concerned, I think, about the spectre of a socialist left which may have access the public at large. Very many millions of people want a society in which people can live in dignity, the climate is protected, and there's very little political voice for that. Our entire like political and media establishment is glued together by like whatever torturous shit these people have done to each other in like Oxbridge. They don't like Navarra media. We're still there and there's still the embryo of a successful left populist project. If you are not taking these guys and rewarding them for being right and punishing them for being wrong, then they are not analyzing, they are fucking dancing. Welcome back to Navara Live. And as you just saw, this show is entirely funded by you. So thank you to all our donors who make this broadcast possible. If you want to support us, then you can head to navaramedia.com slash support and give one hour's wage a month or whatever you can afford. That link is in the description below. On to our next story. The Tory party loves a law and order story, except when it comes to their own prime ministers, of course. Now they're working on a new crime and justice bill and they're considering adding tougher penalties for shoplifters, including jail time. Speaking on LBC, Transport Minister Richard Holden said this. 
I think there has been an issue where sometimes the police haven't concentrated enough on some of these offences, but they really do have a huge impact on our high streets and shops right across the country. If people are particularly prolific on that, then yes, they do need jail time. But I think that sometimes on top of that, you need to tackle some of those underlying causes such as drug addiction, which will often lead them to a life of crime. So I'm all in favour of locking people up if they persistently break the law. Underlying causes like drug addiction. What about underlying causes like a Tory-created cost-of-living crisis and price increases of supermarket essentials being up by 50%? Hello? In March, police forces in England and Wales recorded a 40% increase in cases of shoplifting over the course of one of the worst economic years in recent history. Last May, industry paper The Grocer reported that the theft of everyday items was, quote, off the charts. Last month, the BBC reported that the most shoplifted item in Tower Hamlets was the children's pain relief medication, Calpol. Supermarkets have now security tagged everyday items like butter, cheese and baby formula. And the typical family's annual grocery bill is £837 higher than it was a year ago. Look, we can't prove that all new shoplifting is down to the cost of living crisis, but it certainly doesn't seem coincidental. And there's good evidence to suggest that the cost of living crisis is playing a substantial role. So what to do with all these new shoplifters? Richard Holden gave LBC his solution. If people are persistently breaking the law, then they should go to jail. And if we need to build more prison places for them, then so be it. So no money to help people through the cost of living crisis, but plenty for the prison industrial complex. However, one issue for the Tories is that new shoplifters may not be the people they are particularly keen to lock up. In September, an article in the online magazine Refinery29 claimed this. While the cost of living crisis likely will lead to further increases in shoplifting, it may also be changing the demographic of who shoplifts. It's always been the case that some people shoplift because they have to and others because they want to. But along with these groups, there's now a widening group in the middle who are shoplifting to save money for essentials or bills, or as one of many ways to stick two fingers up to what they see as a broken Britain. So jail for Waitrose customers? Hardly a vote winner in the home counties. But never to be outdone by Tory cop energy, Labour's playing tough on low-level crime too. This was Shadow Justice Secretary Steve Reid on Sky News. We're in some kind of doom loop when it comes to crime because this Conservative government has gone utterly soft on crime and criminality right across the system. We need to be properly stopping and prosecuting and punishing people who shoplift. But this system... So send them to prison? This, uh, it, it, in extreme cases, when, it, when there is repeat offending, then I think you do need to look at prison. The problem is we've run out of prison places because the government hasn't built the extra places that they say that we need. But I, I went down and visited a supermarket in my constituency in South London at the request of the people who run it because they were so worried about shoplifting uh, and how nothing is being done about shoplifters. And what they told me is that the police said they will not come if there, there is shoplifting happening. And they were advised that if someone comes into that supermarket and steals things, to just let them get away with it so they don't risk provoking a fight. And because of that, there are people coming in and shoplifting to order. So they take orders for what they can sell, they come in there and they take it off the shelves, they wheel it out on trolleys in some cases, and they get away with it scot-free. This is lawlessness, and it's lawlessness that has been licensed by this Conservative government. So of course, we need to get the police in there to start prosecuting them. If the, if, if, if the Conservatives are serious about this, they would pick up Labour's proposals, which is to 
reduce the cost of procurement across all police forces by tying it up, generating enough savings to put 13,000 extra police back on the streets. Then there's a chance that a police officer might actually come when shoplifting is going on. After that, you have to prosecute uh, and, and, and punish the people that are responsible for it. Before they go to prison, you'd probably start off with a, a lower level sentence, but even those are not being carried out under the Conservative. People with shopping trolleys full of goods, that's not where the real story lies. The real story is with people like this woman who rang into LBC to say this. I am in a really bad situation. Like, I'm a single mom and I have no help whatsoever from any family, any friends, anything. And I unfortunately find myself shoplifting at times because I am in desperate need of just standard items because I can't get the help that I need. I'm a working class mom and I really struggle. I do find myself in the supermarket at times, like putting some extra things in my bag, like essentials that I genuinely need. And I have been caught before and the security guard just felt so bad for me. And he was like, just go, it's fine. Just literally just let me go. What kind of essentials do you just pop in your bag? Literally like bananas and avocado, Dato white. And have you ever been prosecuted or arrested? For it. No, like I told you, the security guard caught me once and, and I got caught, also caught in Poundland once and the guy just said, don't be so obvious next time and laughed and let me go. How do you feel about, about the fact that you do it? Absolutely disgusted and awful, but times are so hard. Does it frighten you when you hear government ministers talking about jailing more shoplifters? A hundred percent. If someone's stealing cowpole, you know, which is the number one stolen shoplifted um item in in tower hamlet supermarkets what kind of society do we live in that we'd be locking people up for stealing medication for their baby i mean it's it's awful uh mike will you be dobbing in shoplifters on your next trip to tesco <laughs> absolutely not and i think what's what's really sad about this is that both parties are failing to understand the root of a lot of this shoplifting. Like you said earlier, we can't say whether all the shoplifting is linked to the cost of living crisis, but quite a lot of it most definitely is. I mean, we've seen some figures like the Trussell Trust reported that 11 million Brits went hungry because they simply couldn't afford um, food. We know that 90% of food banks have seen a rise in, in demand and, and they're struggling with this, by the way. So actually, when you look at the, the figures... Families up and down the country are struggling. And of course they are struggling because we've seen a slump in wages in real terms. We've seen a rise in inflation. So I think both parties seem to have this idea that people are, are stealing or shoplifting from shops and stealing carport from shops and, and food from shops because they're predisposed to criminality, right? These are criminals. You know, these people need to be locked up and the key needs to be thrown away. But actually, when you look at the context of this country, you can't divorce what's happening up and down the country from the context. The context is people, families are struggling. The governments aren't offering these people the sufficient support. And there have been, you know, desperate times called for desperate measures, unfortunately. Some people are, you know, going through some really tough times and unfortunately are feeling the need to steal from shops just to, just to survive. So if anything, the government should reflect on the fact that they live in a nation where in a borough like Tower Hamlets, you know, the most stolen good is carpool. You know, children, people are stealing to, to give medicine for their children. The government should reflect on why that's such a big issue. You know, why, why are people stealing medicine? It's because they haven't got support from the government. So I actually think that, you know, a compassionate government, a compassionate party, 
diagnose a problem not as one driven by sheer criminality or this kind of predisposition to to delinquence, but rather people are struggling and people just need support at this desperate time with a cost of living crisis. Do you think that this is a vote winner? Like, do you think that locking people up for shoplifting mon- like bread or mundane items in the middle of a cost of living crisis, like, do you realistically think that people are going to hear that and think, great, that's the society I want to live in? I don't think it is. And I don't think, you know, the British people are as, as incompassionate as, you know, both major parties seem to believe. Like, I don't think the British people are frothing at the mouth of, you know, police officers and, you know, law enforcement officers to be, you know, throwing people in prison for years and years because they stole car pole for their children or they stole milk for their children. I don't think that's what British people want to see. I think what we want to see in this country is actually, you know, a government that support those who are who are struggling, who offer them the, you know, the requisite support that they aren't having to resort to shoplifting, you know, essential items like medicine and food. So it's not a vote win. And again, both parties seem to be completely out of sync with the, with the British public, you know, whether it's on climate or migration or, you know, when it comes to cost of living crisis, they just don't quite get where we are as, as a nation. Right, on to our final story. Remember those orcas who made life hell for the super rich? They've spent the last few years attacking yachts off the Spanish coast, even managing to sink three. Don't worry, no billionaires were harmed in the making of this revolution. But the radical coalition of aquatic life has a new member, newts. Yes, newts have joined the struggle, but unlike their whale counterparts, they have a very specific target in mind. Disgraced former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. His plans to build a swimming pool in his new Oxfordshire home face being scuppered due to its impact on the local newt population. The great crested newts in question are a protected species, and so it is an offence to damage their breeding sites and resting places, including by building on or near them. So if you think of the orcas as a kind of direct action group, the newts have taken a more civil disobedience style approach of non-violent occupation. Look, the struggle has many fronts and it takes many forms. Johnson's proposed development to add a swimming pool to his new £3.8 million 17th century house, which, by the way, already has nine bedrooms, a tennis court and a moat, falls within the red zone of highest risk to great crested newts, according to South and Vale countryside officer Edward Church. Bizarrely, this is the latest in a years-long feud Johnson has had with newts. In 2020, he blamed Great Crested Newts and so-called newt counting for causing, quote, massive drags to prosperity because of the delays it can cause to building homes. I'm not quite sure that's why we have a housing crisis. I think there might be some other things at play here. Mike, how do we best express our solidarity for our underwater comrades? I mean, first and foremost, thoughts and prayers with Boris Johnson. It's a very difficult time for him and his and his family <laughs> as he can't build his pool. <laughs> it's just just bizarre, uh, Johnson, isn't he? And and I think, you know, I'm I'm very much with our underwater creatures here, and I and I and I hope that they can cause as much chaos as possible. Look, I think this is actually payback because, as you mentioned, uh, Johnson blamed um, these these newts for. Um, the, he said they were a drag on a country's prosperity and they've come back for revenge. So, you know, it's payback time. And I think these newts are, are very well informed and are going to cause as much problem as, as possible. I think I'm expecting Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nadine Doris to kind of come out with something in the next few days about how newts are part of the Wokarati who are trying to undermine the country's prosperity at some point because they they always seem to kind of come out you're batting for Boris Johnson and I'm sure they'll take a vested interest in his battle against the newts. 
Yeah, they'll probably think that the newts like voted Remain or something. I mean, look, there's no question who's on the right side of history, like Team Newt forever. I was Team Newt before I even heard this story. Um, Just just love them. Um, And the orcas, of course. But the orcas are just like, they're more hardcore militants. Uh, you know, the newts are kind of the the compromise that the, that, you know, the the oceans and the rivers and whatever are offering to us. They're really just dealing with the situation in a way that we, even though we have opposable thumbs and can walk on land and just don't have the guts to really, to really take it that far. Um, right. So thank you so much, Mike, for joining me tonight. It's been a pleasure. Our first co-hosting together. It's been a pleasure. The first of many, I hope. I hope so too. And thanks to everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. From now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.